Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, open enrollment has come to a close on the online insurance marketplaces created by the Affordable Care Act. And in a few short months, millions of Americans have gained insurance coverage and millions more have attained coverage under the Medicaid expansion. A rocky start, but much more promise than people expected. They did a great job. They did, and as we celebrate the fourth anniversary of the signing of the Affordable Care Act into law, uh, I look back and it seemed like this day would never come, but it did indeed. And business was brisk during the final days of open enrollment, up 20% per day in the final week here in our home state of Connecticut. And I think that was the experience all around the country, though, of course, lagging in states like Texas that actively engaged in trying to block promotion of the health care law. The Department of Health and Human Services uh, did grant a small reprieve, Margaret, as long as a person started the enrollment process by March 31st deadline, they would grant a grace period for a couple of weeks to make sure they could iron out all of the difficulties they might have encountered. They won't be hit with a tax penalty for not having insurance by the end of March. Well, we should note, Mark, that there are lots of opportunities for lessons learned here. I don't know when we'll get another big impact program like this, but the administration could have done a better job of messaging. A recent Kaiser Family Foundation poll showed that 50% of Americans just had no idea when open enrollment was coming to a close. Many of them thought enrollment had already ended. Messaging has been a problem since the beginning, Margaret. There's simply so much complexity to health care law and all the changes to health care uh, surrounding it. I think it's going to take some time to process such a dramatic sea change. And in fact, the law envisions over the next few years of enrolling all of the people they set out to do. Well, that's right. And as complex as it is, it's all summed up by the people that I've seen with their cards saying, look, I've got insurance. So that's really terrific. And speaking of change, another poll shows that by two to one margin, a majority of Americans feel the health care law should be kept in place and fixed over time rather than repealed or replaced. So it seems like Americans are beginning to understand the benefits of Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act in ensuring access to health care for all citizens. Meanwhile, legal challenges to the law continue. A private company has sued against the mandate requiring free contraception coverage through employee insurance plans. The Supreme Court heard the case recently, and there's been no uh, decision yet, but analysts are saying that with the court's conservative leaning on this issue, the mandate could be in jeopardy. Well, the health care law definitely has an emphasis on prevention and an emphasis on women's health and on parity. And of course, uh, we'd like to see that mandate upheld for those reasons. It's about creating an opportunity for equal access to preventative health services, including birth control. And it was poor and minority populations tend to be impacted higher numbers in this country. And that's something our guest today knows quite a bit about. Dr. Gary Puckrin is the founder and CEO of the National Minority Quality Forum, and he sees the health care law as a game changer in terms of reducing health disparities in this country. He's an expert on how those disparities impact the health and the well-being of minority populations, something that all of us in primary care see every day. Lori Robertson will also be stopping by, the managing editor of factcheck.org, as always on the hunt for misstatements about health policy spoken in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at CHC Radio or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Gary Puckrin in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news.
I'm Ariano here with these healthcare headlines. Uninsured and staying that way. An assessment of the millions of Americans who are still uninsured after open enrollment on the insurance exchanges under the Affordable Care Act has drawn to a close shows many are choosing to remain uninsured even though they have options both on and off the exchanges. A Kaiser Family Foundation poll showed 50 percent of adults under age 65 who still lack coverage plan to remain without insurance, while 40 percent aim to sign up by the deadline at month's end. The other 10 percent said they weren't sure what they were going to do. And only four out of 10 of the uninsured knew that March 31st was the deadline to sign up for coverage. A majority of the public, 53 percent, is tired of hearing fights over the health care law. 42 percent believe the debate should continue. Meanwhile, of the 5 million folks who acquired insurance in the federal exchanges, a vast majority qualified for tax subsidies to offset the cost of the health plans. Without those subsidies, many families would find the insurance unaffordable for the largely low and moderate income people acquiring the insurance. An appeals court challenge is posing a threat to those subsidies, the cornerstone of the health care law's insurance mandate. The case heard Tuesday began with a lawsuit filed by residents of West Virginia and several other states who object to being required to buy insurance even with subsidies. The plaintiffs were appealing a decision by a judge in a federal district court who sided with the Obama administration and ruled in January subsidies should be available to people in every state. Federal District Judge in Richmond, Virginia, James Spencer, reached a similar conclusion in a separate case last month. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court heard arguments last week regarding a privately owned for-profit company rejecting the health law's mandate supplying free contraception to insured women. The Hobby Lobby case, in which a company owner cited religious beliefs for his rejection of the mandate, was presented before the conservative-leaning high court decision yet to be handed down. And the stethoscope as smoking gun something to consider. A recent study conducted in Switzerland showed one out of 20 patients leave a doctor's office with an illness causing germ after contact with their physician. While hand-washing protocols are strictly followed in many cases now, there's still a contact culprit, the stethoscope. In a study conducted by the Director of Infection Control at the University of Geneva Hospital showed the bacteria on the diaphragm of the stethoscope was much higher than on the palm or the back of the clinician's hand. Common sense dictating that reusable equipment should be wiped down after each use. Turning 50 and the coming of age of the colonoscopy. A study shows the number of colonoscopies is up for Americans over the age of 50. That's good news. Since screening is up, the number of colon cancers is down 30% in the past 10 years. But the numbers aren't as good for minority populations. Fewer access colonoscopies and there are more advanced levels of cancer when they do. I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Gary Puckrin, Ph.D., President and CEO of the National Minority Equality Forum, an independent nonprofit research and education organization dedicated to improving health care for all populations. Dr. Puckrin also serves as executive director of the Alliance of Minority Medical Associations. Dr. Puckrin writes extensively on health disparities and health reform for the Huffington Post and has published two successful magazines, American Visions and Minority Health Today. He was awarded his doctorate from Brown University. University graduating Phi Beta Kappa, Dr. Puckett. Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Well, thank you very much, and good afternoon to everyone. 
And as our listeners may know that April is National Minority Health Month, your organization, the National Minority Equality Forum, is an offshoot of an earlier organization you founded, the National Minority Health Month Foundation, which sought to eliminate the disproportionate number uh, burden of premature death and preventable illness in special populations. And you're very focused in on evidence-based, data-driven initiatives. And Health disparities really remain just an enormous problem for our country. And while the Affordable Care Act is attempting to close the access gap, we still have a long way to go uh, before we see improved outcomes. And I really would ask you to illuminate for our listeners how wide that gap of access and care and health outcomes really is. And and talk really about the toll it's taking on the communities in the nation. It's a great question. You know, if you think about it, um, if you go into a healthcare facility, be it a hospital, a doctor's office, a pharmacy, um, the first thing you're asked to present before you have access to any services is your insurance card. And that insurance card tells a lot about what you can receive by way of products and services, how much of you can receive it, who can provide it to you, and how long they can provide it to you. So what, what's happening in a lot of underserved communities, and, and this is not just you know, a minority problem in terms of African-American or Hispanic, but generally speaking, we've had somewhere around 52 million Americans who have not had an insurance card. So the result of that is they either get emergency care in hospitals. The, the law uh, prevents hospitals from turning anyone away, and so that hospital either provides charity care, and they essentially make up that charity care by charging more for the services from their paying patients, or they get subsidized support uh, from the federal government in which all of our taxes um, go for. Uh, Typically, when they are providing that emergency care, uh, it's more expensive because it's rescue care, typically in the emergency room, or um, because the patient has now progressed further in a disease than they ought to have had given our ability to arrest uh, the development of that disease. It's hidden. We don't see it immediately come out of our pocket. Uh, but when we go into a health care facility, the cost of that rescue care, uh, that charity care, um, is built into the price, as it were. And that's part of what ACA is doing. It, it's, it's saying, well, first of all, since we're already paying for it, let's, let's realize it. But let's do it so that we're doing it in a way in which those people can have continuous health care. So they're not getting rescue care anymore, which is very expensive. They're not showing up in the emergency room uh, where, it's, where it's very expensive. And we're making them better able to be part of the workforce uh, because um, they now can go to work. And so that's, that's really what ACA is, uh, is doing. Well, Dr. Puckrin, a sort of different slant on it that I know you've been very concerned about is the disproportionate representation of minorities in clinical trials, the trials that help us bring uh, new treatments and new modalities to market. And this is obviously particularly problematic when we have health problems like diabetes that disproportionately affect minority populations, and yet they are disproportionately underrepresented in those clinical trials. And you have a uh, campaign, the I'm In campaign, that looks to rectify that inequity. Tell us about that. What are you hoping to accomplish, and what's been the cost of that 
historic underrepresentation in clinical trials. So one of the things that needs to be understood about clinical trials is that they're not only used to develop new therapies, um, devices, and and medicines, but they're also used to help us understand um, clinical practice. What is actually the best therapy to provide an individual when they have a disease or disorder? And what we've come to learn is that everyone's different. We're moving into the world of personalized healthcare in which we are trying to provide the right care at the right moment to the right individual. And in order to accomplish that, we have to get to biodiversity. We have to have more diverse populations in clinical trials um, so that we can best understand what works. And, you know, it's, it's, it's actually kind of a numbers game. And what you want to try to do is get a good sample of the population that is most likely to be affected by a disease and get them into trial to see what appropriate therapy will work for them. The problem has been is that minority populations uh, have not been uh, represented in clinical trials in the past. And so what we've done is it's really in the clinical setting um, after the drug or device is approved, um, it's in you know, use in practice where we come to find out how well it works in a particular patient population. And even more importantly, the underlying data that comes out of the clinical practice is not always available to to all physicians and doesn't always get written up in the journals and that sort of thing. So the idea is to bring a little bit more rigor to all of this by encouraging greater diversity in clinical trials. And so that's what the I'm In campaign is trying to do. You know, get to the issues of trust that may affect some populations because they're uncomfortable about clinical trials, as well as to help everyone understand the value of of participating in a clinical trial. Dr. Pucker, you used the word rigorous, and it seems that uh, that sort of captures the type of uh, outlook and uh, and diligence that your organization brings to the task at hand, uh, which is really about collecting health data from around the country and charting disparities and really looking at both ethnicity and drilling down to zip codes really to help uh, shape a mosaic so that the healthcare population, the policymakers and the like understand the sort of scope and size of this health disparity. In 2020, 40% of the population of this country will be comprised of minorities. So talk to our listeners a little more about the most important and unexpected discoveries that you've mined from this data. Perhaps the most important thing that I've learned from looking at all of this data we've been collecting uh, since about 1998, and we have a database now of well over 900 million patient records, is that there aren't any random events. When you look at populations down at the zip code level, you can predict how many people in that population are going to go to the hospital um, because they've had a heart attack, um, how many of them will go on dialysis, how many new cases of diabetes you're likely to see in a year. And I think that is perhaps the most important understanding that, that I've walked away with. These are highly predictive events. Uh, and so when you talk health disparities, what you're really talking about is a pattern of essentially bad outcomes uh, that are occurring and reoccurring in certain communities. And any good scientist knows that when you see patterns, 
those patterns are caused by a set of variables out there. And so the work is to try to understand those patterns and then how can we break them and, and improve them um, and eliminate disparities when we see them. And I think that's sort of uh, the lesson that, that I've learned over the years. Well, Dr. Parkrin, that, of course, uh, would lead me to the next logical question about what do we do as people who have fought for universal health coverage and universal access, certainly uh, hoped that access to a high-performance health system would would, uh, rise all boats, right? A rising tide floats all boats, is that the expression? So what are the creative uh, interventions? What's the kind of work that's going on that's exciting you about what fundamentally might change this pattern? I think, you know, at the heart of the conversation has got to be, so what do we want out of our health care system? There's a body of thought out there that suggests that people should only get the health care that they can afford. And then there's another body of thought out there that says that health care ought to be a right and everyone should, should have access to it and it ought to be universal. What, what, what I understand is this, is that unlike the early part of the 20th century, we now have choices. In the early part of the 20th century, you know, health care really couldn't intervene to save lives. Uh, And now we are developing the technologies, and by technologies I mean drugs and uh, devices and and, uh, treatment patterns um, that can really control, if not eradicate, a disease. And so the question is, do we want to apply that generally across the population? Um, it's like um, the, the telephone in the, in the latter part of the 19th century, early 20th century. Do we want universal coverage or do we want to limit coverage uh, to some? And, and I think at the heart of the conversation, uh, we've got to make that decision. Now, obviously, I fall down on the side that health care ought to be covered and we need to find ways to make sure that everyone has access to appropriate therapy. But that's the advocacy. That's the work and the conversation that we need to have at the national level. We're speaking today with Gary Puckran, Ph.D., President and CEO of the National Minority Quality Forum, independent nonprofit research and education organization dedicated to improving health care for all populations. Dr. Puckran, you've been supportive of the Affordable Care Act with one sort of caveat, and that's the creation of the 15-member Independent Payment Advisory Board, or IPAB, which uh, was established to find ways to to contain cost in uh, Medicare, and your concern is that the panel yields too much power, though I don't believe it's been fully assembled yet. At least it's on the books. So tell us what you think the impact will be, the negative impact on the health of minority seniors, and tell us uh, more about your concerns and what your organization's done to uh, try to change it. So this, this goes back to, again, ideas about first principle uh, with health care. The place where we start is that consumer demand for health care is going to grow. Uh, we have an aging population that is going to require health care. By 2030, a third of the U.S. population will be on Medicare. And so you, you can anticipate the, the, the consumer need there. Um, you have minority populations who have actually underused health care historically, who are now going to be insistent that they have access to quality care. I think you build a very nice economy around providing health care services. Um, I think a lot of the confusion around the, the value of health care 
is that we tend only to have a conversation about it as a cost proposition, and some of that originates when you know, healthcare was largely provided uh, as a benefit of employment. And so employers really saw it as, as a, a place where they needed to control wages because at the end of the day, that's what healthcare was. It was a form of wages. I, I think we need to rethink that a little bit. I think there's a value proposition to healthcare, both in terms of it's the largest sector in our economy, uh, employs more people than manufacturing does. And I'm just not persuaded that in a market economy, you want government price control uh, to the extent that the IPAB would seem to to suggest. And so I I just think that there's some real thought that needs to go into that. Well, Dr. Puckerin, we've talked mostly about health care so far, so I want to pivot a little bit and talk about health And certainly we were actually seeing the phrase social determinants of health and upstream prevention come back more into the mainstream discussions about health care, which is great. But, you know, when when we talk about the social determinants of health and poor health, uh, we talk about things like diet and living conditions. But, of course, just being poor is a huge contributor to health disparities. Maybe you could share with us, what what has your data shown you about areas where the health of minority communities has been improved by targeted interventions? And I'd also perhaps ask you an opinion question as the push for increasing the minimum wage uh, and trying to raise more people out of poverty takes hold in the country. What is the impact from your viewpoint of increasing minimum wage and just raising people out of poverty on eliminating health disparities? So if you think about it for a second, there's sort of an equilibrium, as it were, where human life survives better. So um, we don't survive very well in deep ocean water, and if you put us up in space, we don't survive very well. And and so you you sort of understand those extremes. And and the question is, if we're really about um, uh, uh, providing and, and, and ensuring uh, that our population has a great quality of life, uh, has opportunities uh, for jobs, uh, has a health care system um, that is responsive uh, to to, uh, to their needs, you, you, you kind of get to the social determinants of health, um, which is that you can actually plot by geography um, where life expectancy in this country is greater and where where it's where it's less. I mean, people are doing that right now, and it's a function of the quality of air, the the diet, the opportunity for exercise, the access to health care, and so um, as as America becomes more diverse, um, what we want to make sure is that um, our society is creating the best possible opportunity. Uh, for everyone um, to to have great quality of life, and so some of the environmental changes, I think ACA is, is certainly an important part of of, of those environmental changes. Uh, we're, we're having conversations um, literally about the social determinants of health, and um, um, lots of organizations are beginning to step in um, to look at issues about diet. And here we're going to find a very complex story when we start to think about diet and uh, in diverse populations. Uh, and you know we also see it as part of education, and certainly um, wages are an important part of it. Um, it is really not appropriate uh, for people to work a full day um, at a job and not have a living wage. Um, I, I don't understand um, 
uh, a society in which um, the the business model is that my business can't survive unless I provide someone wages um, that um, doesn't allow them to raise their family. Uh, there's something upside down about that about that model, and I think that's what the conversation is about. Well said. We've been speaking today with Dr. Gary Puckrin, President and CEO of the National Minority Equality Forum. You can learn more about his work by going to nmqf.org. Dr. Puckrin, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations today. Well, thank you for your time. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, we recently heard President Obama jumbling his facts when asked about employer-sponsored premiums. During a live online Q&A, the interviewer relayed a comment from Dan from Nevada. Dan works for a large corporation and said his insurance costs had, quote, skyrocketed since the Affordable Care Act was passed. Was the law to blame? Obama said no, and he's correct that generally the law isn't to blame for skyrocketing work-based premiums. But then the president's answer got a little fuzzy. He said the average premium was going up 15% a year before the ACA. But that figure doesn't pertain to employer-sponsored plans. Instead, Obama was talking about the individual market, which saw an average 15% premium increase the year before the law was passed. Employer plans, the topic of the question, haven't seen an annual increase close to that since 2002. Family premiums in the employer market increased about 4.8% per year on average in the five years prior to the law. In the three years since, the average growth has been 5.9%. We talked to experts back in 2011 when employer plans jumped up by 9%, and they said the law's new requirements were responsible for about a 1% to 3% increase. New requirements included allowing adult children to stay on parents' plans until age 26, covering preventive care without cost-sharing, increasing annual coverage limits, and covering children regardless of pre-existing conditions. The rest of that year's increase, as is normally the case, was due to rising medical costs. And that's why Obama also went a bit too far when he said on WebMD that the only impact on employer plans was a requirement to offer a minimum set of benefits. Large employer plans also have to spend 85% of premiums on medical costs and have an external appeals process for policyholders. Small group plans at companies with up to 50 workers are the ones that have to cover the law's essential health benefits. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Food labeling could be going one step further than simple calorie counts in the future. 
Public health researchers at the University of North Carolina have some pep in their step for another approach to getting consumers' attention when pondering those food and beverage choices. There's growing interest in a new approach to displaying calorie counts next to menu items. Instead, show the amount of exercise that would be required to burn off those calories consumed from drinking, say, a 20-ounce cola. They developed an icon symbolizing a person walking and how far that person would have to walk to erase the calories they were just about to consume. They conducted a randomized study to determine what, if any, effect the measure would have on consumer choices. And we showed them basically a full menu with all items. And so one group was randomized to no information except the food items. Another one was a menu of pretty much every item, exact same way, and it had the calories. And then a third option had calories plus minutes to walk with our little figure, and it had, you know, for example, 91 minutes. And then finally, a fourth menu that showed the same exact thing with the same exact figure, with miles to walk, so it might say 5.1 miles. Dr. Anthony Vieira, professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill School of Public Health, he said the study showed quite clearly that when consumers saw that consuming a food or drink item would require them to walk five miles to burn those calories off, as opposed to just seeing the calories, it had a direct impact on the choice. So if you looked at total calories ordered, when you were shown no label, the average calories ordered were 1,020, when you were shown calories only, which is a you know sort of the policy, the current policy, the average order was 927 calories, and when shown calories plus miles, the average order was 826 calories. So as you can see, there was a definite decrease in calories when you're shown calories plus miles. The results of the initial study were so conclusive, they are now scaling up their research to test it in restaurants. Restaurant food labeling, showing a consumer how much exercise will be required to burn off the calories consumed helping them comprehend the actual calorie value of the foods they choose, and maybe thus positively impacting their intention to consume fewer calories more wisely? Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.